0: Last week, we had the opportunity to go Christmas caroling, which Casey mentioned in his sermon, but I think I need to set the record straight. I need to clear the record because I don't think it was my idea to go Christmas caroling, although I would like to take credit for it. I think What happened somehow was that our wives got together. Then they gave subliminal messages to Casey and myself until we thought it was our idea actually to go Christmas caroling. Those wives are smart. But nonetheless, I must say it was a blessing for our connect group to be able to share Christ with our neighbors in the form of song. And I think often that's what Christmas is about. It's about sharing Christ to those who don't know him, but we're also doing it in community, in fellowship with one another as believers. This week, we also were able to go on another Christmas adventure with some friends. We had an opportunity to go to a live nativity scene. Now, I've never been to one. Many of you may have been to a live nativity scene, but it was my first time. And when we got To it, there was a crew of volunteers dressed up in all the parts. There was Mary, there was Joseph, there was the shepherds, there was the wise men, there was King Herod, there was even real donkeys, real goats, and a horse. And it starts sort of, it's an interactive thing. So we walked up to the first scene, which was the scene of King Herod, and there was a praetorium guard standing next to him as he was sitting on his throne, And he started telling us that there's been a baby born. His name is baby Jesus. And he started asking all the children in our group their names. And all the children were timidly, shyly saying their name, whispering it back to King Herod. And then it got to my son. And my son Silas, who's three years old, sort of charged up to the front and said, my name's Siley. And And this is his nickname. His real name is Silas. But King Herod then asked Silas if he was here to see baby Jesus. And inside, I was a little puffed up with pride thinking, I wonder if he's going to quote a gospel here, maybe quote the birth of Christ. Or is he going to talk about how excited he is finally to be able to see baby Jesus? Well, he didn't say anything like that. He said, Where's the live animals? I thought there was animals here to pet. I was a little horrified, and I think my wife was as well. And King Herod, I think, was actually speechless because he just sort of politely moved us on as I was a little embarrassed. But um, we were going to the next scene, and then Silas, as he was leaving, protested and said, King Herod's a bad king from the Bible. So, so... So so I must say, we did have a great night, we had a lot of laughs, and the kids did finally get to pet the, the animals. But the paradox, the irony in this whole story that I just told, the nativity scene, is that we were supposed to be there to be focused, to be centered on Christ, on baby Jesus. And all the while, my son was focused on the animals. When we think about the Christmas season, what paradoxes, what seeming contradictions come to our mind? I mean, think about it. On one hand, we have Santa Claus, we have flying reindeer, right? We have elves, we have presents galore, we have parties. And then on the other hand, we have this joyful, joyful, just wonderful idea knowing that Christ was also born on that day. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, God in the flesh, the most significant birthday in all of human history we celebrate during this season. Another paradox to think about is, I wonder who gets more attention in the Christian home during this season, Christ or Santa Claus, or in my son's case, Christ or live animals? So I've entitled this message this morning, The Paradox of Christmas. The Paradox of Christmas. This morning, we'll look together at the Christian Christmas story with fresh eyes as we explore the irony, the birth of Christ. Those things that seem almost contradictory to us, but to Christ, it's exactly the way they should be done. Exactly the way God wanted them to be done as we recognize God's ways are not like our ways. The scripture actually says that God's ways are higher than our ways. So open your Bibles to Luke 2 1 through 7. Luke 2 1 through 7, where we will begin this morning. Let's go to our Lord in prayer as we start. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you. We thank you for this season that we reflect on the birth of your son. We thank you for the perfect obedience of your son, willing to become man and at the same time still being God. It baffles our mind, it blows our mind, Father. So many things that your word says is so hard for us to comprehend. I ask that you help us to lean on you in faith and depend on you, instead of doubt. Father, we celebrate the birth of your son, although we, know, we don't know exactly when that was, but we do celebrate it during this time, Father, and help us, help us to have Christ on the forefront of our, our minds always to share the gospel with others. We thank you, and it's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's holy, inerrant, infallible word says this in Luke 2, 1 through 7. to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So at first glance, it seems that Luke wrote this story in somewhat of a downward progression of characters, those people that are most important, most prominent, most significant, all the way down to, to the least prominent, least significant of people. Because in verse 1, it starts out talking, the story starts with Caesar Augustus. as it's, and, and that would be comparable in our day to starting a story out with the first president, George. Washington, because Caesar Augustus was the first emperor who proceeded after Julius Caesar as there had been much turmoil and division in the Roman Empire after the assassination of Julius Caesar. And Augustus was the ruler who sort of brought the whole empire together and he ruled over it all and brought stability back to Rome and ushered in what is known as the Pax Romana, which meant peace in Rome. But then we progress down to what we would expect to be the second most prominent figure in the story, which is found in verse 2, Curinus, the governor of Syria. And Curinus being the governor of Syria meant he was over the providence of Rome. But the next character we learn about seems to be quite a step down from the emperor governor to verse 4, where it talks about this man, Joseph was from the lineage or descendant of David of royal blood, but he was just an Israelite. So to the Romans, he was just part of the people that they conquered and subdued much earlier. Joseph was a poor man, so to his own people, the Israelites, he was not very significant either. But then We go to the second-to-last character in this supposed downward progression of importance, and it's found in verse 5. She is found in verse 5, which says, Mary, a Jewish girl, a young Jewish girl, which being a woman in this time period meant she was already somewhat insignificant compared to men. But we also find this about this Jewish girl. She was considered a virgin, yet... She was already pregnant before she was married. But then we go down to the baby. In verse 7, the last person in this story, the probably to most it would seem the least significant. Let's read about this baby in verse 7. And it says this, And she gave birth to her first born son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn so the infant the baby the son is the final character which we would think the most insignificant above all characters we would assume the most powerful ruler in all the land emperor augustus to the weakest most vulnerable most helpless the infant the baby would be least prominent in this story but i bet that most of you know this story. You've probably read this before. So we recognize that the downward progression is actually the exact opposite of what we would think because Luke is showing us an upward progression of importance as we move from one character to the next. And this leads to paradox number one. You might want to jot this down. And it says this, the insignificant of the world is often the most significant To God. Let me say that again. The insignificant of the world is often the most significant to God. I mean, think about it. The helpless, weak, vulnerable, dependent infant, the baby is the focus. He is the Savior. He is the Lord over all. He is Lord even over Augustus Caesar. He is Lord over all emperors. He's Lord over all kings. He's Lord over every president. He's Lord over all mankind. Amen? And the reality is, without Christ, there wouldn't be a christmas story there wouldn't be a gospel of luke nor would there be a gospel at all there wouldn't be an old or a new testament without christ because he is the center the focus he is the highlight of all scripture and without him we don't have the bible he is the messiah and one day he's coming back to take his people But this reminds us that often who the world esteems, who the world gives honor and prominence to is often the exact opposite to those God esteems, lifts up, gives significance to. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. This is Paul, the apostle, talking to the church at Corinth. And he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So Paul here destroys our self-esteem. He shatters our self-worth. He destroys our ego and tells us that God uses people like us because we are weak and foolish to the world. The world assumes that the wise, the brilliant, the leaders in the world are the most significant to God, but we learn that God's children are often those that have nothing to offer and those who seem pathetic, most pathetic in the world. We can look at God's people in the past and see that God often used the timid. He used the fearful. He used the helpless. He used the average Joe, and yet that is who God decided to use for his glory. The question is why? Why? What is the point if a person really is weak or foolish? Why does God have any use for such a person? You would think the weak, the foolish, would show a bad representation of God to a world that doesn't know him. But yet, that's who God used. Let's go forward in our 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to read through 28 through 31 to see the answer why God uses the helpless, the foolish, and the weak. And it says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul said, God uses the weak. He uses the foolish to shame the supposed wise, and the supposed strong, to show that God is great. And it leaves no question to who gets the glory. Amen? Which leads to paradox number two. In Christ, the helpless are made strong. In Christ, the helpless are made strong strong it was martin luther the great reformer that said this god made man out of nothing as and as long as man and as long as we are nothing he can make something out of us let me read that again god made man out of nothing and as long as we are nothing he can make something out of us Luther's point is that when we know we're weak, when we know we are nothing, then we're empty and ready to be filled with whatever God wants us to be filled with so we can work and be an instrument of His instead of being our own instrument doing what we want. Do we have this view of ourselves that we are nothing? That we are helpless? And it is God who fills us by His Spirit. We are here to reflect to magnify christ not ourselves the reality of it is we all are weak and helpless but many live the delusion that they are the lord over their own life that they are control of their own future and it may be because they've had some type of success one way or another maybe it was financial maybe it was just they were gifted or maybe they just naturally have a large ego they live like they are their own god and then one day tragedy strikes a loss of a job, a terminal illness, a loss of a loved one, and their world is turned, flipped upside down. And this is when God begins to draw them because it is Christ that makes the weak strong. It is Christ that heals the sick. It is Christ that lifts up the downcast. It is Christ that feeds the hungry. It is Christ that makes the broken whole. It is Christ that makes the blind to see. It is Christ that cleanses the sinner and washes them clean it is christ that does those things who gets all the glory not us christ is the one who makes nothings like us into some things for his glory christ is the one who makes the ordinary into extraordinary for his glory he is the reason why we are brought into the family of god so we can make much about him not ourselves Paul said this in Philippians 3, verse 8. You can just jot this down. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is Christ number one in our life this morning? I think most of us can honestly assess our life and realize that he is not. The Christmas story is about Christ, the coming Savior, who saved us, who saved those who are weak and wretched sinners like us. That's the gospel message, amen? It's not try harder, but turn to Christ. Relish in what he has done for us. Remember the birth. We need to remember the birth, but we don't stop at the birth. We, we need to remember the perfect life he lived and the brutal death that he took on for our, on our behalf and then sat in a tomb for three days and was raised from the dead. The gospel reminds us of God's love for his people. But let's go back to our main passage, and we're in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Luke 2, verse 7. And it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So let's get this straight here. So Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and there's no place, no room for them in the inn, which James Montgomery Boyce, a great pastor and theologian, says that Luke is saying that there wasn't a place for them anywhere in Bethlehem because if it was so, they would have been there, her being pregnant, ready to have Jesus. So think about it, Mary is ready to have Christ, the The God of the universe, and there was no room anywhere for him. Paradox number three, there was no room in Bethlehem for Christ. There was no room in Bethlehem for Christ. Many of us go on trips, and maybe we don't book a hotel, and we find out when we go to the one we want to be at. It's booked, it's too busy, and we just move on to the next one, right? But here we have the most significant birth ever, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the hope of the world, and there isn't any place for him to be born? Where was God the Father? Was he busy that evening? Did he have other plans? Was his hands tied? And it was just too busy in Bethlehem for him to have a place for his son to be born? Couldn't God have found some place for a son to be born? I mean, God who created us, who spoke the world into existence, who raises the dead, who, who flooded the earth, who, God who is in control of this world, who ordains our beginnings, it says, and our ends, did not? could God not have found a place for a son? Well, we know. You all know, I know, that God was behind his son's birth. God had the night of his son's birth preordained already, which leads to paradox number four. God planned the way his son was born. God planned the way his son was was born god was over the details of his son's birth god is not just over the big picture but in the details god the father was with his son working at his birth it wasn't by happen chance that bethlehem was full this was god's sovereign plan what he wanted is what came to be church god's providence prevailed i wonder If we look at God as Lord over the details, over the blessings, over the sufferings, over the mundane moments of our lives, many live like God is an impersonal God, like a deist perspective that believed that God sort of created everything and left us here to figure it all out. This is not the God of the Bible that we read about. God did not spin the world into existence and leave. No, he is involved. He is working. He is creating. He's transforming. He's doing what's best and loving his children. Do we see God as a personal, working for his glory and our good type of God? Scripture says in James That every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from the Father of lights. James also says that when trials come our way, that God again is using them for our good. We find out that God is in the details of our life. He is there when the troubles come. He is there when the blessings come. He's there in it all. God is in the middle of the believer's life, the good and the bad. He is in the middle of it all, using it to grow us, mature us, and help us to become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. You can just jot this reference down. Psalm 139, verse 16 says this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let me read that again. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what does it mean when the psalmist says, every one of them, the days that were formed for me? And I know many will say this, it means God looked into the future and wrote down every one of our days, which we call Foreknowledge, But I say that is not what this means because the word formed can also mean ordained or planned. It gives us a picture of God being act- active in our life. He's shaping us, forming us, molding us. He's not a passive bystander watching us. There would be no hope or point in God saying he ordained or planned or formed anything if he just sort of said, yeah, Terry did that today, I'm going to check that off. Or, yep, yeah, Terry did that that day, I'm going to check that off too. He's not doing anything over my life then. I'm in control of my life. God is intimately involved in our lives. God is doing what he desires with us, Church. He guides where we go, who we are friends with, who we will marry, how many children we have. God is in the details. He loves his children. And he is working through us and for us. And our right and wrong choices are intertwined in his sovereign plan. Now hear me saying this, these are for the believers in Christ Jesus who gave their life in faith and repentance to him. That's who we're talking about, our God's children. Now this does not mean though that he is behind our sin. God does not sin nor does he tempt us to sin. James says we sin when we give in to the inside desires of our heart and which is waging war in our bodies, James says. But my point is that we can rest. In, his, in a sovereign God who is doing what is best for his children. Let's go back to our main passage, and I'm going to look at the last part of Luke 2, verse 7. Luke 2, verse 7. And it says, There was no place for them in the inn, There was no place for them in the end. I wonder how many of us are sitting in here right now with a heart that is full of everything else but Christ. I wonder if our busy lives crowd out Christ. What does our home look like? Is there peace, patience, joy in our homes? Or, or... Is our life filled with chaos, craziness, and strife? Some of us may be saturated in our work as our hearts are wrapped up in what is going on in the office. Success, power, prestige drives us. There's no room for Christ because we are too consumed with worldly success. others of us may be going through various trials and struggles of many kinds and we are thinking when the storms subside then then I'll follow Christ and usually that's when it's too late paradox number 5 says this like bethlehem our hearts are often too busy for Christ like bethlehem our hearts are often too busy For Christ, we sang the song, Prepare Him Room, this morning, which says this. Oh, our hearts as busy as Bethlehem, hear Him knock. Don't say there's no room in the inn. Through the cradle, cross, and grave, see the love of God displayed. Now He's risen and He reigns. Praise the name above all names. Would we compare our lives to Bethlehem this morning? Are we too distracted and busy for the Lord Jesus Christ? What is our hearts consumed with as we sit here? As I stand here, what's my heart consumed with? Well, in conclusion, as we prepare for Christmas, we may still need to get some last-minute shopping done. And do some final preparations for the Christmas day. But I'm confident of this. At the end of the day, we will be ready for Christmas activities. We will get the house picked up. We will get the presents for the children. That'd be funny, sort of all of a sudden the kids got up and Oh, we just didn't get the presents. Sorry, guys. Um, But we'll have the dinner fixed, ready for the feast, right? Everything will be in its place. It'll be in order. The real question is, are we prepared for Christ? Talk about another mind-blowing paradox. We work and prepare so much for holidays, for moments that are here and gone. And Christ often gets our leftovers, we have room in our hearts for Christ. We may need to spend some time this Christmas holiday spending time with our Lord and Savior instead of being so distracted by all these things that really don't matter. Christ is far more important than getting the house ready. Christ is far more important than all the things we chase after and fill our hearts with. The paradox of life is this, that often. We are running from Christ, the one who wants to give us life and give it to us abundantly. He knows what we need, church. He knows what is best for us. The question is, will we prepare room for him in our hearts and our lives for him? Well, at the family church and in our homes, may our lives be saturated with Jesus Christ during this Christmas season. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Dear Father, help us, Lord, to truly live, to slow down, to make room for you and your word, to reign over and through our lives. Teach us to wait for you. Teach us to magnify your name in all we do and say. Thank you for your your everlasting joy and peace we find in knowing you, the joy of our salvation. Thank you for sending your only precious son, Jesus Christ, to come and live and die for sinners like us to have hope of glory with you. Praise be to your name, wonderful counselor, almighty Lord, in him we pray, amen.